Lady of Mount Carmel and St. Therese in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Good afternoon, this is Father Dwight Campbell, back with hour. I'm so happy to be with you here today on this um, fourth Wednesday of the month of June. And the month of June is, is the month of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And <clears throat> if you recall, uh, last week we celebrated the Feast of the Sacred Heart. Last Saturday, uh, pardon me, last Friday was the Feast of the Sacred Heart. And last Saturday was the feast which follows upon the Feast of the Sacred Heart, the Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Those two hearts are united in a, in a deep union, a bond of love. I'll quote St. John Paul II. Um, when Jesus gave her fiat, her yes to the angel at the Annunciation, the heart of Jesus began to beat beneath the heart of the Virgin Mary. And there really began the union of their two hearts, which was consummated on Calvary. I'd like to start today's Marian hour with uh, a prayer, and we'll we'll pray together the, the the beautiful prayer, the Memorare, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, and I would, I would add uh, St. John the Baptist, pray for us. Today is the feast, the solemnity, a high feast of the birth of St. John the Baptist. I'll just say something about that quickly. Um, the birth of St. John the Baptist is six months out from the birth of Christ. Uh, it's at the vernal equinox. The day is longest, you could say, at the birth of John the Baptist, and then the light begins to grow less and less. And with the birth of Christ in December, six months later, um, he is the light that has come into the world. The light begins to uh, stay with us longer throughout the day up until mid-June. So uh, John the Baptist who gave the great witness to Jesus, shedding his blood um, on, on behalf of that witness to Christ, and is the, is the greatest of the prophets who pointed out Jesus when he makes his first public appearance. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So. Today, in today's show, I would like to continue on the theme of the, the Immaculate Heart of Mary and how it's related to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Uh, I began on this theme last week 
prior to the Feast of the Two Hearts, last Friday and Saturday, the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And I'd like to continue on that today. If you'll recall last week, last week I, I began speaking about the heart of Mary from a Christian anthropological perspective, or you could say a biblical anthropological perspective. Why do we venerate the heart of Mary, the heart of Jesus for that matter? Well, the heart is the, the preeminent symbol of the interior of the person, what's going on within them in their mind, their intellect, their will, their passions, emotions. It's the symbol of love. <coughs> uh, with Jesus, his heart is the symbol of both his divine and human love. And with the Blessed Virgin Mary, her heart is the symbol of her love for God, her love for Jesus Christ, her love for all of us is also, with both hearts, the symbol of their virtues. You know, Jesus says, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. And I mentioned last week that devotion to the heart of Jesus really finds its source not in the verse I just quoted, which was St. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, but rather chapter 19 of St. John's Gospel, the piercing of Christ's side and, we believe, his heart. St. John describes the blood and the water was flowed forth from the heart of the Savior. And devotion to the heart of Jesus takes root in that, that verse. And I like to say, actually, devotion to the heart of Jesus, his pierced heart, begins with Mary at the foot of the cross, who's venerating his heart and uniting her heart that is pierced with a sword of sorrow in fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy with the heart of her son. St. John is there too fittingly, um, worshiping, adoring, venerating the heart of the Savior. And if you'll recall last week, I pointed out that with, with the heart of Mary, we, we look to scripture verses as well. Luke his gospel, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, says, this is after the shepherds visit the newborn Christ child, that Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. The Greek word for pondering, symbolusa, the verb can also mean comparing or uh, interpreting. Mary pondered, compared, you know, the, the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, uh, and then what she experienced in her own life at the Annunciation, and what she would experience later in the public life of Jesus, especially at the foot of the cross. Mary kept all these things in her heart and, and pondered, compared, interpreted all these things. That's verses 2 uh, verse 2, pardon me, chapter 2, verse 19, and also chapter 2, verse 51, St. Luke tells us after Mary and Joseph find Jesus in the temple that Mary kept these things in her heart, 
keeping in one's memory, you, you could say. Another scripture verse for devotion to Mary's heart, a basis is Luke 2.35, chapter 2, verse 35. That's Simeon's words at the presentation. This child will be the rise and the fall of many and a sword that will pierce your soul, which is actually the, the literal um, word that St. That Luke uses, suke, soul. But from very early on, late 2nd, early 3rd century, um, writers have been talking about Mary's heart being pierced, and that was a prophecy that was fulfilled, especially at the foot of the cross. So <coughs> we have these scriptural verses which refer to Mary's heart. And as I mentioned last week, too, we have the, the liturgy. Um, in the liturgy, we have the scripture being read early on. And <coughs> um, in addition to those verses I just quoted being read, people would have heard those verses and, and uh, it would have stimulated thinking in the minds of people, especially uh, for those who would read those words in the minds of the of the, the fathers of the church, the great saints of antiquity. Um, they pondered themselves those words about Mary's heart, also about the heart of Jesus being pierced. And this was the beginning of devotion to the hearts of Jesus and Mary. They, they developed the devotion to these hearts developed, you could say, contemporaneously. And uh, especially in the liturgy, the people in general would have heard those verses and, and would have pondered them in their hearts and got people thinking about the meaning of the hearts of Jesus and Mary. And Another verse I'll mention, too, which contributed to devotion to the heart of Mary was the Annunciation. When the angel announces to Mary that she will conceive and bear a son, um, Mary utters her fiat, let it be done to me as you say. The early Christian writers, um, St. Augustine, Pope Leo the Great, they say that Mary first conceived Jesus in her heart before she even conceived him in her womb. When the angel makes that announcement, before she can even respond, she's already doing God's will because she is uh, an obedient handmaiden of the Lord. That faith-filled, humble, obedient heart we see with the Virgin Mary. And <coughs> um, Good scholars talk about how the New Testament, these verses I've just quoted from Luke's Gospel, um, really contain the foundations for what, what one may call a liturgical piety, a piety drawn from the liturgy. When people would hear these verses read at the Mass and then begin to, to ponder them, to think about their meaning in relation to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, so 
this is the beginnings of devotion to the heart of, of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I'll, I'll mention something else here, too. There's a Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council document on the Word of God, um, the Constitution on Divine Revelation, it's called. And actually, the Latin is Dei Verbum, the Word of God. And the Word of God, both in Scripture and tradition, we're not Protestants, we don't look to the Bible alone as the basis for our belief, but that's one of the important sources. We also look to tradition, the teaching, the preaching of that Christ gave to his apostles, which was then handed down under the influence of the Holy Spirit, who came on Pentecost, leading and guiding the apostles and their successors in office, popes and bishops, in the fullness of the truth. and. Uh, God, God's word is revealed through the teaching of the church as well. And the church document, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, Dei Verbum from the Second Vatican Council, uh, talks about how uh, doctrine makes progress in the church. You could also say devotion as well. Um, progress meaning a, a growth in, in insight, okay? Um, deeper insights on the meaning of the words of scripture are granted to believers who contemplate and study the word of God. And especially, says Dei Verbum, uh, the preaching of, of those who have the sure charism of truth, that is, those in the office of bishops, and many of the great saints of antiquity were bishops. Uh, they were the great um, fathers of the church and the ecclesiastical writers as well, who followed them in later centuries. They are passing on and helping uh, doctrine on Mary and her heart, as well as devotion to the heart of Mary and Jesus as well, I would say, grow, develop, uh, to get deeper insights into the meaning of the hearts of Jesus and Mary. And I'm, I'm going to quote from you, I, I left off last week, I think, uh, with a quote from St. Ambrose. St. Ambrose was the Bishop of Milan in the late fourth, early fifth century, and he helped to convert a bad boy named St. Augustine um, with the help of St. Monica's prayers. St. Ambrose wrote a number of, of uh, you could say, exhortations to, to virgins, the, the women who were leading the consecrated life, urging them to look to Mary and, and her heart uh, to imitate. You know, one of the uh, most perfect ways of practicing devotion to the hearts of Jesus and Mary is to imitate them. Jesus even commands us to do this. He says, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. Meekness, gentleness, Jesus even mentions before humility, um, not glorifying oneself, but giving all glory to God. Well, the Blessed Virgin Mary um, her heart is, is a model for us to imitate, especially her virtues. And 
St. Ambrose realized this, and, and he's one of the early saints that looked to other verses in Scripture and, you know, accommodated them, applied them, you could say, to the heart of Mary. One of those verses, I quoted this last week, uh, the Song of Songs or Canticle of Canticles, when we, we, we read these words um, from the Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 2. I was sleeping, but my heart kept vigil. Okay. So that, that vigilant heart that's, that's always awake, seeking the Lord and to do his will, uh, this is applied to Mary, according to St. Ambrose. And he encouraged the consecrated virgins to imitate Mary in her heart. Um, I'll mention one more here before we take a little break. We're going to take a break in just uh, a couple of minutes. Um, another um, author who who, write it, who wrote beautifully in regard to the heart of Mary was a Cistercian um, monk. He's a blessed Guerrick of Igni. He died in 1157, about the middle of the 12th century. He had lived with St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and Blessed Guerrick says that by imitating the Blessed Virgin Mary's openness of heart to the will of God, expressed in her fiat, let it be done to me as you say, at the Annunciation, we can, like her, attract the Holy Spirit into our hearts to enter the wounds of our hearts, he says. And there, with Mary's help, she's our mother who helps us, the Holy Spirit can conceive and form Christ within us. Isn't that a beautiful idea, okay, that that we can imitate Mary, that openness of heart, um, her, her fiat at the Annunciation, and by doing this, attract the Holy Spirit to come in and dwell in our hearts, and in order that the Holy Spirit may, may better form Christ within us. Form our hearts, you could say, into a likeness of Jesus Christ, um, and we do that by forming our hearts into a likeness of Mary. We go to Jesus through Mary, we go th through her pierced heart to the heart of Jesus. I hear the music. That means we're going to take a little break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. God bless you. I'm Bill Wennington from the Church of St. Mary's and the Chicago Bulls. I, I believe Catholic Radio is important for all of us out there listening to help us through days when maybe our faith is being challenged by many different obstacles that are put in our way and it's a chance to reflect and just think and hear stories from other people that maybe are going through the exact same issues that we are going through and how they have struggled and how they are getting through their problems today. 
WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at WSFIRadio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated. The Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is blessed with the opportunity to participate with WSFI Catholic Radio in the new evangelization. Holy Family is your local resource for books, CDs, and DVDs from Catholic Answers, Ignatius Press, and all of the other fine publishers featured on Catholic Radio. Holy Family also has the area's largest selection of baptism, communion, and confirmation gifts. Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is located at 9249 Old Green Bay Road, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. More information is available on Facebook. We have a mystery guest in the studio, don't we? we well, he's, he's not a mystery. He's not a mystery to you. He could be a mystery to you on your show. Hold on, we have to put his mic on. And you okay. are mic number Yeah, three. you'll have to put that mic on. This is... Okay, uh, let's see if that's working. That's it. So, um, uh-huh. we're, we're, honored. Current, we're, we're, we're honored to have you here today you, with Father. us. Uh, Mark doesn't know what I'm talking about. He just, he just popped in. <laughs> so, I'll just inform him that... Um, you know, last Friday was the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Yes, it was. The month of June. Yes. The, fe- the month of the Sacred Heart. And last Saturday, fittingly following upon the Feast of the Sacred Heart, was the Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Yes. So last week, I began talking about the Heart of Mary and the Heart of Jesus, too. This week, I'm continuing on that. And I'm, I'm talking about how devotion to Mary's heart developed. Okay. And um, her heart, the symbol of her, her interior life, her love for God, her love for Jesus, her love for us, her virtues. And um, one of the best ways that we can practice devotion to the heart of Mary is, take a guess, how can we practice devotion? To rosary. The rosary, okay, to the heart of Mary. But now, if we have in mind that Mary's heart symbolizes her her interior life, her virtues. Um, how else do you think we can practice devotion to Mary's heart? Memorari. Well, that's true. <laughs> but thinking about her heart as a symbol of her virtues. Oh, the five first Saturdays? Well, when well, I... Well, I guess Mark and I like little kids in a class. Okay. Consecration? <laughs> well, consecration is, yes. Yes, that's consecration. That's one of the ways. Uh, but imitation... St. Louis de Oh, imitation, Mark. Yeah. Okay. Maybe flunked that one. Imitation yeah. of her, her, her virtues. Morning glory, though. I thought Angela's answer was excellent, too. Okay, well... You know. We only get bees, Mark. <laughs> yeah. But the, the imitation of her heart... Is, is a way that we, it's probably uh, one of the, the best ways, if not the best ways, to practice devotion to, to Mary's heart because we want to cultivate in ourselves the same humility, the great faith, uh, great abandonment, uh, recollection, constant, continuous recollection of Mary's heart. We can try to 
uh, imitate her in, in these virtues. And I just quoted a medieval, he's a blessed, he's not a saint, a bl blessed Guerrick of Igni. He was a, a, a Cistercian monk who was, had lived with St. Bernard of Clairvaux, you ever heard of him, okay, who, who said that if we, if we imitate Mary, her fiat at the Annunciation, we can attract the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in our hearts and to form Christ in us more and more. A beautiful thought. Um, and then I'll quote from another Cistercian, Adam of Persane. He, he died at the beginning of the 13th century, second decade of, and he says that the heart of Mary is the channel through which the heart of Jesus who came from the heart of the Father comes to us. And so that our Lord may open his heart to us, unite our hearts to his. Yes. And this is, this is one of the early testimonies from a medieval saint about this notion of the union, the alliance, as Pope John Paul II called it, of the hearts of Jesus and Mary. It began at the Annunciation when the heart of Jesus begins to beat beneath Mary's heart, a beautiful thought, and is consummated on Calvary. She's standing at the foot of the cross. So, um, in fact, Simeon's prophecy, you know what Simeon's prophecy was, right? Yes, that uh, he would see the Savior. Well, to Mary, when they present the baby Jesus, Joseph and Mary present the baby Jesus, right. Simeon says, this child will be the rise and the fall of many. I, I can go home now. And a sword, like a sword, yeah, that will pierce your soul, or it's commonly understood, heart. Yeah. Prophecy. When is that fulfilled? Yes. The when sword piercing your heart at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, it's yeah. fulfilled. Okay. And medieval writers began a, a genre of writing in in the like the middle the Middle Ages. Okay called Plantus Mariae. Plantus means a lament. Mm -hmm. okay, lamenting, you know, sorrowing of Mary. And um, when they did this, they focused on her heart because they were looking to that, that verse of Simeon. And these writers would invite Mary, or pardon me, invite the reader in their words to share in Mary's sorrows. And I'm going to read the first instance of this type of a writing which I found in my research. It's the, it's the earliest one I found. Back from maybe the 6th, 7th century, and the, the writer is really unknown. We don't know who it is. He, he uh, wrote under the name of Ephraim, but it wasn't St. Ephraim that we know. But he said this. He, pl he places these words on Mary's lips. Okay, so in, in this, in this, in this Plantus Mariae, O admirable Simeon, now she's at the foot of the cross. Okay, now the sword which you predicted for me is piercing my heart. Mourn with me, all you disciples of the Lord, considering my sorrow and the deep wound of my heart. So very beautiful. Mary, she's asking us 
to mourn with her as she's standing at the foot of the cross to compassionate with her. Uh, that term compassionating is, is the beginnings of the notion of reparation. Uh, compassionate, to show compassion, it comes from passio is a Latin word. It means to suffer. Compassion means to suffer with. Okay. So to compassionate means we're, we're suffering. We're mourning with Mary. We're imagining her at the foot of the cross. We're, we're sharing in her suffering in our, in our imagination, uniting ourselves with her. Some of the writers who talk about Mary say that God even granted her the gift to see our future uniting ourselves with, with her while she was at the foot of the cross. She was able to see us uniting ourselves with her, which consoled her heart. Okay, a beautiful thought. A way to practice devotion to her as well. So, um, Father, do you think she's still at that foot of the cross right now? I know we're talking in past tense. Well, this is, this, is a, this is a real mystery. Glad you asked that question because what does it mean to, to um, share in Mary's compassion? Um, especially to console her heart. Someone in heaven can, uh, as, our, as we understand it, can't undergo sorrow or sadness because you're seeing God. And yet Mary has said, you know, console my heart over these offenses that are heaped upon me. And she's weeping when she appears. Yes, and she's weeping at La Salette. She weeps, okay, at Fatima. The children saw her weeping, holding her heart, sadness. Akita. Akita, uh, the, the statue. We have, you know, that wept 101 times. Wow. There was a, a relief, um, a plaster relief in Syracuse yeah. in, in Sicily mm -hmm. that, that wept in the 1950s. And Pope Pius XII said, you know, we don't know what to make of this. You know, how, how could Mary be weeping now because there's no sadness? But... I think you look to Jesus. Jesus shows sadness too, like to St. Margaret Mary. He appears to her as sad. And he says, console my, this heart you know, of mine that, that undergoes such uh, abandonment and, and insults from so many people, uh, indifference from so many. His heart in the Eucharist he was talking about, because his heart is there in the Eucharist. The Eucharistic miracles actually show this, right? They do. When they examine them, it's the heart of a man. I'll mention something else here, too. Just Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires and... Lanciano. And Lanciano. You know, they did tests on these. They both concluded the heart turned to flesh. Lanciano was from the ninth century, okay? Uh, Buenos Aires was from 2000... Sorry. Um, sorry. 2000, uh, maybe three, I think it was. Anyway, when they compared these these hearts, these hosts turned to flesh. They found it was the heart of a young man, the same DNA. They said, this is from the same person. Anyway, not to get off on that, but you know, how do we explain Jesus being you know, sorrowful, needing consolation now? Um, you know, Pope Pius XI wrote an encyclical in 1928 on reparation to the heart of Jesus. 
you can go you can google it and read it it's really a beautiful encyclical and in that encyclical he offers one explanation and this is papal teaching this isn't some theory by a theologian okay only but Pius XI says that Jesus for example in the Garden of Gethsemane you know he's he's sweating blood because the understanding is he foresaw all of our sins of the whole human race he saw them I, human I always struggle with that 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 the um, the ability of the Father to know what we're going to do before we do well, God, Christ God's, as well. God's yeah, outside of time. To know what we're going to do before we do it and then the concept of free will. I always, yeah. It's such a hard concept to grasp. Yeah, well, you're, you're not alone, Mark, because... Because <laughs> he's <laughs> this a is, lawyer. No, no. Oh, you're both lawyers. No, yeah. this, this has been a, a concept that has befuddled theologians for, for centuries, okay? For millennia not just centuries. But we know that this is true. God sees the past, present, and future. God is, is, is outside of time, okay? We're in time. Time is the measure of change. God's outside of time. He sees past, present, and future. But that doesn't take away our free will. It doesn't take away our free will. But Jesus, this is the papal teaching, okay? But Jesus in the garden foresaw, he saw in his human mind all of our sins, past, present, and future till the end of the world and he sweated blood. But also, he saw our future acts of love, for example, adoration before the Blessed Sacrament, which consoled his heart at that time, okay, in the garden. So he was undergoing agony, but also consolation. So this is one explanation that a pope gives, Pius XI, of how Jesus' heart can be consoled because he foresaw this back at the time of the Garden of Gethsemane. But there's a, another explanation, I think, too. Um, I'm going to be writing on this, an article on it. You know, everything that took place with Jesus took place in God. He's the God-man. So the interior experience of Jesus all, all, everything he experienced in his heart, in his mind, um, stays with him for forever. It j just isn't something that came and went, right. because he's God. He's in that eternal now of God, and therefore, in that sense, he's always th that that suffering in the garden, seeing our sins, is always with him. Wow in this sense. And and I like to think that Jesus could share this this same experience with Mary. And this could be maybe one explanation of how Mary can say, you know, I'm console my heart now for, for what I'm undergoing. Even though she's in heaven, even though she has the beatific vision. But it is a mystery. It's the big M word. You know, we can't figure it out. Um so um we do the best we can, and and um, the thought of of compassionating Mary, though, of of standing with her in our imagination at the foot of the cross, and and uh, joining our sorrows with hers is a beautiful thought, a beautiful way to to.
to live out uh, a devotion to the heart of Our Lady and the heart of Jesus too, because we we can stand at the foot of the cross with Mary and joining in her suffering help to console the heart of Christ when he was suffering on the cross. In uh, this idea of, you know, Jesus foresees our, our, or foresaw our acts of, of love and, and compassionating even on Calvary, okay? He foresaw them. So, um, and this is the idea of making reparation to, to the hearts of Jesus and Mary as well, repairing for, for uh, the sins of people for which Mary and, and Jesus both suffered. Reparation is one of the, the great um, uh, forms of devotion to the heart of Mary. And you mentioned another one earlier. What was it? Do you remember? What you, you mentioned it. Consecration. Oh, consecration to Our Lady. Right. Yeah. Consecration to the heart of Jesus, to the heart of Mary. That's that's still another way of, right. of practicing right. devotion. I've done that. Is it? Was I've done it before. Did you do the easy one? Did you do no, the easy one? Or the hard? Oh, uh, you did the hard one. Yeah, it was like 33 days, right? 33 no, days. Well, that's yeah. N yeah, the lo the long one. Right. Both, I love. You did that one. Yes. Oh, then yes. You, you got it made in the shade. You're no, 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 no. <laughs> Actually, didn't he say that? So though? that's what kills me. I don't like. It's it's sometimes it's just so Calvinistic the concept that you know what I mean predestined and that God knows and it just kills me. You know what I mean because somebody knows if I'm going to heaven or hell before I've done anything. Well, God knows. God knows because he, like I said, he's outside of time. Right. And yet, I'll, I'll use an analogy here before we take a little break. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got a few minutes. Okay. Kind of hijacking your show, Father. No, no, no. This is it's, it's a good question because it is a conundrum with people. Okay. How does how can we have free will if God knows what we're going to do? And, and Louis Marie de Montfort does say devotion to Our Lady is a sign of um, predestination. Predestination in the sense that and th well. We believe in Catholic predestination. Right. Catholic predestination means God knows the past, present, and future. Okay. That's why we can have the book of Revelation, because God knows what's going to happen in the future. That's why you can have prophecy, because God knows what's going to happen. The Old Testament prophets prophesied the suffering and death of Christ. Okay. So uh, we don't have a problem with, with that notion. Calvin's predestination is double predestination. That's how we, we classify it. Double predestination means that we have no free will. Right. That things are set and we can't choose. If someone ends up being saved, it's because God predestined them and favored them. But he didn't favor others, so they're predestined and they have no choice about it, you no. see, for hell. Well, that makes God a monster. For sure. But I'll, but I'll use an analogy here to help understand how God knows the future and yet leaves our free will free. So it's not programmed. C.S. Lewis used this example. <coughs> Have you ever driven out in the country in the cornfields during harv before harvest time when the corn's up? Okay. Sure. When the corn is up, and if you're out in a rural area and you come to a crossroad with no stop signs, I learned this fast when, when I was driving in the country 
I was in rural parishes for a couple of years as a pastor, and you think, oh, you can just you know go right through the at the crossroads. Well, no, because after I did it the first time, I thought, well, I didn't, I didn't even see anyone because I can't see anyone coming from the east or the, you know either side of me because the corn's up, and so I slow down because if you don't slow down, you could boom oh, have a yeah. you could both be you know coming at the same rate and you crash a pusher of mine had that happen uh, almost died um, because he just figured he wasn't going to slow down at, at the crossroad well what if you're up in a helicopter and you see two cars heading toward the crossroads at the same rate they're going to you see beforehand they are going to come to the crossroads at the same instant you can see that mm -hmm. from the speed of the cars, okay? Yeah. You foresee that. The drivers can't foresee yeah. this. Okay. Are you taking away their free will because you can? You know it's going to no, happen? But and then you get into the whole concept that it God intervenes at, at times and at other times he doesn't. Well, he, he, he can. So he's more, than, he's more than a helicopter. But, but he does leave yeah. our wills free. Yeah. He doesn't force them. Yeah. See, so this is the idea that right. we're not, just because we can see the, the future doesn't mean we, we determine it and right. take away free will. Anyway, we've got to take a break. Okay. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. false sense of security? How about relying on the life insurance you get through work to pay for all of your final expenses? Do you have plans to retire someday? Or do you plan on working for that company for the rest of your life? The fact is, you may lose your life insurance when you leave a company. I'm Matt Tomlinson from Catholic Financial Life and I invite you to share your hopes and dreams with me. To discuss your options for protecting your family, call me at 847-548-MATT. That's 847-548-6288. Products and services not available in all states. In your spare time, would you help the Catholic community? WSFI Radio needs a volunteer to help with administrative data entry and office work in Libertyville, Illinois. For more information, call Angela at 224-206-8455, 224-206-8455, or email us at info at wsfiradio.org. last segment, the last third of my hour, and I try to make good use of my time always, and we're, we're blessed with a guest today. If you weren't here for the last, the second part of the hour, uh, we have uh, Mark Curran with us today. He's been he's been asking me some some tough questions, throwing me some curveballs. I, I hope I've been able to hit them um, about free will and and God's foreknowledge and all this stuff. But I'm just going to ask Mark your 
for people that don't know you, um, you are the former sheriff of Lake County, correct? And uh, twelve years. Twelve years, and and you're running for an office now. Tell us what office. Right. So I'm running for U.S. Senate in Illinois. U.S. And, Senate. Uh, Gosh, who Republican. else is running for U.S. Senate? So the, I'm the Republican nominee, and Dick Durbin's the Democrat nominee. He's been in uh, Washington for 38 years in Congress. Okay. Well, uh, what what would you say? from a Catholic point of view, we're yeah. a Catholic radio station and we, we want to vote Catholic, vote our Catholic principles, our Catholic values. What would you say distinguishes you from Senator Dick Durbin because he's Catholic too, Right. I right. know. Tell, tell us what... So, yeah, what I would say is um, Dick Durbin is, uh, he believes in abortion on demand and uh, he's been told in the Diocese of Springfield where he lives by Bishop Raprocki that he's not to uh, present himself for Holy Communion. I, I don't know if he was told directly, but uh, Bishop Raprocki made that known and he made it known to the other priests in that diocese. So Senator Durbin is not uh, somebody that follows the teachings of the Catholic Church. And without getting real cruel, I'll, I'll just right. say this much, that um, Senator Durbin is a guy that, uh, and I've, I could talk to you for hours about his his career but I don't think he believes really in anything I mean he's somebody that you know if he believes that the Democrat uh, the Democrats in power wants something then he'll just evolve to claim that he believes that and I've met other people like I, I talked about Luis Gutierrez I've met in the past and I think he really believes some of that socialism nonsense and he, that he's totally uh, it's in his core and he's a, he's a sweet guy even though we don't agree with him on anything but well, Durbin is somebody that's just a, he's number two in Democrat leadership and I think he's got his power and he'll, he'll say whatever he needs to Okay, and and isn't it uh, true? I mean, I, I read the the Democratic platform, which really worries me, and and I mean, it's being touted now, uh, you know, unabashedly, that you know, basically to to get rid of the Hyde Amendment, that that we should be forced to pay taxes to fund abortion. Isn't that on the Democratic Party platform, oh. the national platform? Isn't that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And we already are, actually, because we fund Planned Parenthood through tax dollars. Yes, yes. But, uh, yeah, they, they want to make sure that, you know, get rid of the Mexico tra uh, Treaty Agreement and all the other restrictions on taxpayer funding of abortion. Okay, well, um, you, you, you can't be a Catholic <laughs> and and in favor of, of killing unborn children. Right. Uh, he's in favor of a lot of other things that are very harmful to Catholic teachings as well. And, I mean, he's somebody that uh, would have your tax dollars go to transgender uh, and would um, silence any ability to speak, you know, truth as far as... Uh, you know, whether it's a gay lifestyle or transgender or anything else, I mean, you know, he's, he doesn't believe that uh, the faith has any role in the arena. But, you know, even more importantly, our, our faith is, um, what we as Catholics believe is known independent of, uh, of our faith. We know it through um, natural law. And so, in natural law is well, not only Catholics; everyone knows this. Right, exactly. So, right, exactly. Right. So we're not arguing. You know, we believe something because the Catholic Church teaches it. No, we're arguing 
what we, what we argue, because it's known uh, from natural law. Natural law can be known from reason. Right. And natural law is... Reason implanted in, in our hearts and minds. Right, and exactly. Yes. And so it's wrong to kill, it's it, wrong to murder, exactly. it's wrong to steal. So it's right. independent of any scripture or anything else like sure. that. So, you know, as Catholics, we don't sit there and say that, you know, we have to have a devotion to the Blessed Mother or something. And no, you know, I mean, natural law is, is limited in, in its scope, but... Um, it, it recognizes the obvious things that there's a God and where human life comes from and that it should be protected and and not only that but you know it was in the founding documents of America you know it's mentioned uh, four times in the Declaration of Independence so one of the reasons why America is in such tr trouble right now is because of the natural laws in the garbage can and Dick Durbin put it there and that's why well, we see a lot of others he wasn't the only one well, was, yeah but he's number two in the Democrat leadership in the United States Senate and he's uh, you know, he, he may not be the uh, um, the the grand marshal, if you will, but he he's right there in the in the top circle. A mover and a shaker. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, I would just say this because we're on the air, yeah. and and you know, I would if 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 you're listening out there, Senator Durbin, Durbin, you know, I would I would welcome you to come and and talk and and respond if you, if you'd like. Yeah. Uh, I'll offer you that opportunity, but uh, you know, it's it saddens me to see. Um, you know, so-called Catholic um, legislators, lawmakers, judges, whomever it may be, to to be going against not only the Catholic Church's teaching but against the natural law. And and our bishops, you yeah. know, for, for many years right. have said that abortion is the the primary issue because uh, it's it's a life and death issue. It right. really is. I mean, right. it's, it's like saying, well, you can't be a single issue voter. Right. Well, people were back back in. Abraham yeah. Lincoln's time, yeah, that was the single issue, right. and this is this is isn't enslaving people. This is murdering right. innocent unborn children. Archbishop Chaput wrote a book, "Rendered Unto Caesar," and he right. uh, talked about John F. Kennedy's statement to the. Uh, uh, Baptist ministers in Dallas, Texas, right before the 1960 election, where he said that he wouldn't let his faith uh, interfere with with his decision making as president, and um, Chapu said that was the worst statement ever made by a Catholic be in history because it, it is absolutely, absolutely not what we're called to do. We're called to incorporate our faith into everything we do in life. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I, I thank you for yeah, standing absolutely. up for life. No, and, no. and just um, keep praying for me. I, I certainly will. I'll, I'll encourage our listening audience Thank to pray you. for you and that, and that especially Catholics may may vote their conscience on this most important issue, life. Because you know, uh, Congressman Lipinski just lost, and uh, right. you know his seat for many years because of the pro-life issue. I mean, yeah. he's a Democrat, yeah. and yeah. basically they're, they're they're telling people now, oh, you can't right. be even a Democrat and and be pro-life. You have to be right. pro-abortion. And right. and didn't didn't that woman run against him? Right. Marie, Marie Newman who went to she's a mother Macaulay grad and all the rest so she's a Catholic but pro-abortion uh, pro yeah exactly platform right right her, her, her yes so that's so that's we're in a battle so you know we're in a battle we you are know, people are uh, but we're going to win in the end see Mary says at Fatima this is the uh, topic of my, my talks today. right Immaculate heart, my yeah. immaculate heart will triumph yeah okay. and we need to embrace the suffering because ultimately we're going it's going to be a lot of suffering we do, yes. Either we can try to avoid it, and you know, 
the pangs of conscience, knowing you know people that are on their deathbed. They always, you know, one a good friend of mine, Tom Shippers, who died recently, said it's never the things you did that that uh, trouble your conscience. It's going to be those omissions. So mm. those are people that are trying to you know skate around it right now. Get ready for either either you you better prepare for suffering, or you're not going to have a pleasant death. Mm. So. Yes, well, well, we'll pray for a, um, a moral revival in our country. We, we surely need it, Mark. Yep. But thank you for thank running. You, thank, thank you, Father. For Thanks so much. God bless you. For being pro-life and, yeah. and pro-God and country, okay? Amen. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. So I'm going to continue here with talking about devotion to Mary's heart. We were talking about the Middle Ages and... Um, I'll quote another ecclesiastical writer, a Saint Bruno, not the Saint Bruno who founded the Carthusians, but this is another Saint Bruno who was a bishop in Segni, Italy, and later he was the abbot of the Monte Cassino uh, Monastery of Saint Benedict. And he speaks of Mary collecting in her heart all the words of Jesus and keeping them there in her memory. Beautiful thought. In order okay, that the evangelists could learn from her school, the school of her heart, basically. Okay, This is what he said. Almost wise mother who collected in her heart all these words, kept them for us, and confided them to her memory so that later, under her teaching, they would be written, preached in all the world, announced to all the nations. The evangelists learned them at her school. Now, I'll say something else here, too, in, in, to complement that. Uh, St. John Paul II, in a couple of talks that he gave, I believe they were in Poland, he spoke of how Mary kept these things in her heart and how Mary, you know, she is the model of the church and the mother of the church, the icon of the church, and Mary, her heart, is the church's memory. And, I mean, if we understand this as Mary kept everything about Christ, was passing it on to the, the gospel writers, the apostles, okay, she is the church's memory. And that is a beautiful thought to contemplate that we should be trying to gather, contemplate, uh, meditate upon all the, the words and teachings of Christ, just like Mary. This is a beautiful way to imitate her. And another medieval writer, I'll, I'll, I'll mention him too, William of Malmesbury. He, he died in 1143. He talked about Mary's unique memory, concerning all these things, as Luke tells us, she kept all these things in her heart, enabled her to uh, communicate all she knew about her son to the apostles. And she deserves to be called the apostle of the apostles, the evangelist of the evangelists. I thought the apostle to the apostle was Mary Magdalene. Uh, well, you know, not necessarily. I mean, we, we can apply these terms. If, if Mary Magdalene was, then, then the Blessed Virgin Mary was par excellence. Yes. Because 
you know, no one could be uh, a teacher, a formator, uh, an apostle to the apostles, an evangelist to the evangelists, like Mary, because you know, where did where did Saint Luke gather his information about the Annunciation, the Visitation? It was from Mary. Right, and I think Mary Magdalene. It was her her claim was that she was the one that Christ, that told the apostles that Christ was risen. So yes. just a just a one one right. section where you're saying right. Mary, the whole totality. Right, she is of the New Testament came from her. Absolutely. Okay, yes. I concede then. Yes, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll I'll quote here. I've got a few more minutes here. Uh, the great Saint Bernard, he wrote a sermon on the 12 privileges of Mary, and he drew this from, remember, Angela, Revelation 12, 1. The woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head... Crown of 12 stars. 12 stars. Okay, so Saint, Saint Bernard took this idea of the 12 stars, Mary's crown, and he talked about how each of those stars represents a privilege of Mary or oh. a virtue of her. Okay, it was very beautiful. And he, he grouped them into four, 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 and four, makes 12. The last four stars in a constellation he called the prerogatives of the heart of Mary. Her modest meekness her devout humility, her magnanimous faith, and, this is so beautiful, her martyrdom of heart. Wow. Think about, you know, a martyrdom of, she underwent a martyrdom of her heart at the foot of the cross. And I, I'm gonna quote him when he, on, on this idea. He says, after the death of thy Jesus, his soul, could not be wounded by the cruel lance that opened his side, because he was already dead. But thy heart, thy soul, O Mary, it could and did transpierce. Thy soul, thy heart, was transfixed with the violence of sorrow, so that thou art justly proclaimed to be more than a martyr, since the sufferings thou didst endure from the force of thy compassion far exceeded all the pains that could be that could have been inflicted on the flesh. In other words, Mary's martyrdom of heart was a worse suffering than all the martyrs combined in their physical suffering. That's how much she suffered. And this is the idea of from words like this that the doctrine developed of Mary's co-redemption, co Mary's co-redeemer. She suffers with Jesus. She associ associates herself with his suffering. She cooperated with the suffering. All these words mean the same thing, okay? Co-redemptrix, uh, associate, um, cooperatrix, okay? All of these things, they mean the same basic thing, which, which St. Bernard didn't use that term, but he's meaning the same thing here. And you know, I'll, I'll just I'll jump forward here just to uh, to say that you know, um, Saint Pius the used that term co-redemptrix. John Paul II used it many times, but Pope Benedict the fifteenth, fifteenth, not sixteenth, okay, the fifteenth in his nineteen eighteen letter on to, to to sodalities. Okay, he teaches that Mary nearly died with her suffering son. Therefore, we may well say that she with Christ 
redeemed mankind. So this is the idea of Mary's, Mary's co-redemption. And another uh, motive for us to have a devotion to Mary, to compassionate with her, to make reparation to her sorrowful and immaculate heart. Uh, I have one more minute. You have I about one minute, Father. Okay. That's it. Okay. I'm, I'm just going to say the, uh, the way we can show devotion to Mary and her heart is to imitate her heart, her humility, her her great faith, her contemplative attitude all the time, and in addition, consecrating ourselves you to Mary's heart, dedicating our lives to her, doing everything for her, with her, in her, through her, and then making reparation. Consecration is followed by reparation. And we do so to the heart of Mary in order to do it to the heart of Jesus. We go through her pierced heart in order to arrive at the heart of her son, our Redeemer. Thank you, Father. That was a beautiful show. We're going to segue now to go to the chaplet. Thank you so much for, for all you're doing. You're very welcome. See you in two weeks. Two weeks.